So remember, Peter is the eyewitness who watched Jesus do all these things, and he's basically telling the things that he saw to his friend Mark. And so Mark is writing these things down. And so you can imagine what that is like as Peter's just recalling this uh, story to Mark. And the book of Mark is a fast-paced book where Mark is bouncing from one thing to the next, and, and he, he uses a very factual kind of writing where we did this, we did this, we did this, kind of a, a, a theme and a rhythm. He talks a little bit of, of Jesus' teachings, but it's more of what Jesus does, and then a lot of his declaration. And remember where Jesus in, in this book is, what's highlighted is the fact that he is declaring himself as the Messiah, as the Savior, who has been promised to rescue his people, to usher in the kingdom of God, uh, to bring the good news that God is restoring broken man back to himself. And so Jesus is declaring himself as such, and he's also doing things to prove it. He is, he is executing multiple miracles on the physical realm, in the spiritual realm, all of that to show and, and back what his claim is, that I indeed am the Messiah, and if you want to take a look at me, watch the things that I do, and I'll be doing the things that a Messiah does. In fact, I'll be doing the things that have been prophesied about the Messiah. So that's the context here. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13. And so this is when Jesus calls uh, a man named Levi, who is also called Matthew. And Matthew is, in fact, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And so this is uh, his story called out in the book of Mark. Uh, before we get started, I'd love to pray with you. Father, we declare your scriptures as uh, breathed by you. Although it was written down by fallen men like us, uh, it was protected by your spirit and has come to us in, in what I believe your will and the original form and intent is so that we can come here and be fed by it that your word is alive and active, that we can take what we hear and apply it to our lives and the way we interact with each other and indeed the way we posture ourselves before you. And so as we open your word and as we seek to understand it, we just beg your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, beg your Holy Spirit to instruct and teach us. Thank you that you want to be known by us and you truly have changed our life. Amen. Okay, so picking up, verse 13 says, He, being Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And as he reclined at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So the first thing we get is this man, Matthew, who's sitting in a tax booth because he's a tax collector. And tax collectors had a reputation of their dishonesty. They basically would selfishly and connivingly rob the people for their own selfish gains. And so they abused their authority in lots of ways, and, and most everyone knew it. 
so much so that uh, around the time of Jesus, there was a man, not in scripture, but in other uh, pieces of history called Sabinus. And he was a tax collector in Rome. And when this man died, they actually put on his grave, uh, it said, here lies an honest publican. And a publican is another name for a tax collector. And so to such extent that they had this bad reputation, when there was one good one, I mean, they highlighted this thing. Here lies an honest one. Okay? And so the other thing is, Levi is a Jew. And there's, many, many scholars think that he had four brothers that are mentioned in the scriptures. And these are devout Jews, and yet Levi is a tax collector. So to be a Jew and then go work for the Romans as a publican um, is kind of a slap in the face. Uh, Again, Rome was in charge at this point, and the Jews weren't rebelling, but but they were not happy to be underneath Roman rule. And so you probably picture Matthew as the, really as the black sheep of the family. And so there's an interesting picture here when you first think of who this man is. Probably the black sheep of the family separated himself from his people to to basically make a lot of money. And so it makes sense why the Pharisees and even others are kind of looking at him with a distance and disdain. But yet, what does Jesus do? He comes to him and he says, you follow me. He picks him out. And to me, I'm so reminded of Second Corinthians 5.17 here, where you flash forward a little bit and it says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Where Jesus sees sinners, Jesus sees people who have nothing to, in a sense, bring of righteousness, and that's who he calls and that's who he changes. And he doesn't just polish them up. He doesn't just make him less uh, dishonest. He reaches in and he totally changes his heart. And at this point, what he sees in Matthew probably is simply his own power, not Matthew's. He knows, I can turn anybody into godly. And so he calls him and Matthew follows. Through Christ, there is mercy for the greatest sinner. Great sin and scandal before conversion are no bar to great gifts, graces, and advancements after conversion. Matthew Henry says, And so there's many times we look at our life and I think we disqualify ourselves for the work of God because we say, look look at how I live or look at what I do or look at what I think. And yet, Scripture says that none of us are qualified in and of ourselves. And this is a great picture of that where Jesus says, whatever you have done before, it matters not because I have eliminated that. And in fact, I would say whatever we continue to do, we continue to receive his forgiveness. And so... Yes, when we sin, we're to, to grieve and have sorrow and repent. But don't ever fall for this idea that you're disqualified for the work of God because of these things you have done. In fact, I'd probably say the qual- to be qualified, you have to be a sinner. You have to be selfish. Join our club, right? We got cards and everything. Moving forward, you recognize some interesting things here where... Jesus, when he's here, follow me. And as, it, as the, this piece of scripture opens up, it says he's walking by the sea and crowds are following him. And so Drew spoke last week on just the attractiveness of Jesus. And there's an element where, where Jesus was, people go. Some of this, I believe, is, is attraction. Uh, some of this, I believe, is curiosity of, man, who is this guy? There is a crowd around him. But there is something for us to take away that we recognize where Jesus is, people are. 
And I believe that we are called to be a reflection of him. We are called to carry him. And so wherever we go, whether it be by the sea or in the wilderness or eating dinner at a publican's house, we have opportunity to express Christ as Christ did. And you start to recognize what characteristics bring out Jesus Christ. And this scripture points out humility. And when we have humility and that manifests the spirit of God in us, people are drawn to that. Now, sometimes they're drawn and they want more of it. Other times, it's offensive, right? Other times, people are are drawn to this picture because they're curious and it's offensive. And so you get a little bit of both as Jesus did. But although Jesus spoke loud and strong and with authority because he was declaring he was the Messiah, he starts to make almost this, there's almost a mixed message because they've been looking for the Messiah and he says, yes, indeed, I am the Messiah. But what's he do? All of a sudden he says, but I'm not what you expect. I'm not coming to establish an earthly kingdom, though a kingdom is here, right? And so you understand a little bit of the confusion of those around him. The interesting surprise that Jesus pulls out is, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, watch this healing, watch me cast out this demon, And then the surprise is, oh, but yet, I came to be a slave to all, and I came to die. And again, that's the thing that the apostles, they couldn't get in their minds, so they didn't even acknowledge him saying that half the time, right? Beautiful thing is we know we are called to become slaves and to die to ourselves, to reflect Christ. But the other beauty is that next time he comes, he comes in power. He comes in all of his majesty, And it says he brings us with him. Or if we've passed, he brings us back. And so again, I love the idea of the big picture of all that's going on, the the story that God is telling here. And we get this beautiful part to play. And now we get to look into the scriptures and just see all of what's happening. Application point on this here. Again, I believe when we're humble, when we recognize that we're sick, we'll talk more about that. Christ manifests himself, and as he manifests himself, people are attracted to us. Quick point, fathers, husbands, I talk to guys multiple times that tend to disqualify themselves because they, uh, they can't cite scripture and tell you where it's at, or they don't feel real comfortable praying out loud. And they have people saying, you ought to be the spiritual leader, you ought to be the spiritual leader, you ought to be the spiritual leader of your, of your home. And we hear that over and over and over. I believe spiritual leadership starts with this. If you as a father and as a husband surrender humbly to God, then you simply live out Christ and that is the greatest lesson you will ever teach. I don't care if you ever gather your family around and say, we're going to read John 1, in the beginning was the word. If you don't know that, that's okay. Now I want to encourage you to continue to study and strive for those things, but that may not be your spiritual gift. That may not be where God has wired you, but where he has wired all of us, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters, is to surrender to his spirit, and people will be led by you in awesome, awesome ways. So all these ideas that we have of what it has to look like, kick those to the curb, honestly. Leave the teaching to Evan and Drew. (laughs) You teach by the way you live. Interesting, as you see this unfold, and he goes and he eats, and he has a meal in this tax collector, in this publican's house, and there's a lot of people here. 
And so one, this is a, probably a big house, probably a pretty wealthy man, and we probably know how he got to be wealthy, right? Stole people's money. Jesus goes in and, and capitalizes on this. So the Pharisees come, and if we go back to the piece of scripture, they're, they're wondering, why is he eating with these sinners? Why is he eating with these tax collectors? And so first, it's interesting to note this pride and this judgment that the Pharisees bring. The Pharisees were used to fasting two times a week. And John's disciples, we don't know if they did the same, but they fasted regularly, and it's pretty likely that they followed suit. That the disciples of John the Baptist would fast a couple times a week as well. And the text doesn't say this, and I'm reading into this a little bit, but I have a feeling this could have very likely been a day that they were fasting. And so, interesting that they show up to this feast, right? They have no interest in eating. They're there to be judgmental. And an ill heart always is seeing rejection and always is being critical. And so they show up on the scene, and I think simply to execute arrogance of themselves and cast a critical spirit upon all these. And so what Jesus says when he knows they're grumbling, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So what was the problem? The Pharisees didn't see themselves as sick. The Pharisees saw themselves as righteous. And if you're righteous, you honestly have no need of a Savior. And there's many times where we play the exact same role. We don't recognize where we came. We don't recognize the sickness that we had. I read a man say a person's main problem is not his struggles, it's his sickness. That our disease is sin. And that's why the Messiah came and calls himself the great physician. He says, I can do something about that. I can take that on. I can take on your disease and give you my health. And we sit today in that health. And so part of it, I just have to keep reminding myself, I'm healthy now because of Christ. Act like it. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man who is wise, healthy, righteous in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And you can remember the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, where he says there's a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they go to the temple to offer sacrifices and pray. And the Pharisee sits there, and the first thing he says is, thank you, God, that I'm not like that tax collector. Whew. He's a bad man. Same kind of thing happening here, right? And the, the, the tax collector can't even lift his eyes because he's beating his chest. Humility. And he knows he's sick, and he knows he needs a doctor. And as he, and he, as he says, have mercy on me, has mercy on me, Jesus says, who went home justified before God? The one who knew he was sick. You think about when we go to a doctor, we don't want them simply to say, oh, this is what you have. Have a good day. Right? We go to a doctor so they'll do something about it. If I walk in and visit Tim, it's like, tell me my problem, but now give me a solution. And this is what Jesus is a great parallel. Jesus isn't simply describing our sickness. He's telling us what to do about it. I went to, I've seen multiple neurologists over the last few years and have had all these tests and I tell them what they're going to do before they do it to me, you know, that kind of thing. And they're great people and they're working hard and uh, went to a neurologist about a year into my virus 
and a friend wanted me to try an EMG, and he wanted to get a baseline, and this guy does all these tests and stuff, and he, he finishes, and he says, yeah, you got nerve damage. I was like, no kidding? This guy's genius. Uh, and also, he, was, he was at a disadvantage because he didn't know a lot of what I've gone through. But the point is, thank you for telling me I'm sick. Thank you for telling me I have a problem. But is there anything that you can do? And there's a lot of times we, as Christians, we tell everybody that they have a problem. And here's, here's a, a sobering challenge to myself and us. Uh, we worship in a very grace-oriented environment. We worship where I think the Spirit of God has, has revealed to us this whole message of grace, that we are saved simply by what Jesus Christ has done and not by what we can do. And so we wear this on ourselves, and then we get judgmental about people who aren't that way. We get judgmental about people living under the law. How backwards is that? Oh, they don't understand this. It's one thing to protect your flock and to not let someone put a a yoke of slavery over you, as Scripture says. But I need to be very, very careful that I don't say, oh, I understand grace with pride. Think of how upside down and twisted that is. And so let's be, a, let's be a church that embraces grace more than anything else because I believe grace is Jesus. And let's walk in that grace, but let's be careful when we come across people who haven't had that revelation. We come across people who don't quite understand that simply because God hasn't revealed it. Maybe they haven't looked. But let's be careful how we approach those people. We can certainly approach them with truth, but let's not be like the Pharisees walking into their party just to tell them, how wrong they are. Because I promise you, that is not going to get them to believe grace. Right? Interesting thing as well, as it says that there were many tax collectors and sinners and many were following him. They were following Jesus, again, maybe out of curiosity, uh, maybe because they thought, hmm, I know I have issues and life doesn't work. And I think this guy might be able to do something about it. Spending time with Jesus changes people, right? You spend time around Jesus and you get changed. There's a gal, I love the story. Her name is Rosaria Butterworth. And she self-described she is a leftist lesbian professor who despised Christians. She was. Leftist lesbian professor who despised Christians. And she set out to study the Bible Um, for various reasons, not to pursue God. Uh, But she was a a scholar, and so she would spend five hours in the Word reading it to study it and do a a big dissertation on it. And as she spent that kind of time in the Word, God reached in, invaded her life, and brought her to Christ and made her a new creation. And afterwards she says, anybody who spent any time in the Bible knows if you spend five hours a day, it changes you. Amen. Spending time with Jesus changes people. Remember, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. What I understand that to mean is we are going to be around non-Christians, non-believers a lot, and we are called to be witnesses to them. We are called to express Christ to them. We are called to bring an invisible God out into the open where he can be seen by the way we live, by the way we treat them. But also keep in mind that I need to be careful when I recognize even though I have divinity within me, I am not divinity. And so Jesus, I think, had a little bit 
he could immerse himself within sin and essentially stand strong and be without sin. I think though we're called to be in the world, we also need to be very careful. Scripture also says that bad morals, bad company corrupts good morals. Meaning I need to understand that if I lock arms too tightly with the world and that's all I'm around, I will begin to look like the world. And so as we see Jesus have a heart for these people, we're called to have a heart for these people. But as I go out and minister to the lost, I better also have a place I come in and I get fed and I get healthy. And I recognize my flesh tendencies and so I don't expose myself to those too greatly. So I think when we look into scripture, it's, it's a good reminder that we're part of divinity, but we're not divinity. Switching, switching scenes a little bit, and let's go to the fasting. So same, I should say, the same scene, but a different message. So again, uh, in verse 18, it says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, Jesus's, they don't? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the groom is with them? As long as they have the groom with them, they can't fast. The days will come when the groom is taken away. And they will fast then. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away the old from the new, and there's a worse tear, a worse hole. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskin. What I think hap- is happening here is... If you'll remember, the main theme that Jesus is trying to declare is, I'm the Messiah. And so all these things that have been promised to you, all these things that the Jews have been looking for, all these things that certainly the Pharisees should have known about as students of the law, he, he is saying, as he says in, in Luke, the kingdom of God is here. He's saying we are transitioning from old covenant to new covenant. And the transition happens with my presence. And so those things that were once fitting, they aren't fitting right now. And he likens it to a celebration. He likens it to a wedding. You get all your, your, your bridal party here, flies into town, and you're ready to celebrate this new phase of your life. You become something different as you become one with a spouse. And all these people are here to celebrate. That is not the time for fasting. Another translation in another gospel, it says the time to mourn. So I don't understand all of fasting, but there's an aspect of that that there's a recognition. All is not quite as it is. And so we fast to remind ourselves that God is our portion. We fast to keep our relationship with food in check. We fast to just execute self-discipline. But at this time, when your bridal party comes into town, it's time to celebrate. And so this is yet another indication of Jesus saying, we are moving into a different time. Same God. Same promise of redemption, but now is the time that the groom is coming and beginning to be united with his bride. You don't put out a campfire when we're sitting around it, enjoying it, right? And so Jesus is saying, if you take some of the old and you apply it to the new, it's going to mess both of them up. This wine is going to be poured on the ground and the wine skin is going to be broken. One of the interesting applications here, I think, is there is a time and a season 
in our Christian life, like God's transitioning from Old Covenant to New Covenant. I've heard often, and this is a, a joy, I've, I've been a part of Rimrock most of my life, and I've heard a lot of people say Rimrock is a good place to come and heal. It's a place for people oftentimes who have been burnt out by man-made religion. And either that's been handed to them or, or they've chosen, and they come to Rimrock and get healed. And I think it's fitting and interesting to recognize that there's different transitions, there's different seasons, and scripture talks about a time, like Jesus is saying, this is a time to come and be fed. This is a time to come and eat with me. This is a time to come and get strengthened. And so I want us to create an atmosphere where people can come and be strengthened. There's an organization, I think I've said before, but their motto is get in, get healthy, get strong, and get going. There's phases, get in, get healthy, get strong, and get going. And we are all in different phases. And so it's important to understand and recognize what, your fa- what phase you're in and also what phase the people around you are in so you can encourage them in the right way. Part of this is recognizing when someone is a new believer and we want to bring them into the church, I think we want them to feel welcomed, we want them to feel a part. We want them to even feel ownership. But that is the time to simply have them come sit at the meal and eat. That's why scripture says, charges, that we don't, we don't have new believers be elders. It's not, that's not their season right now. They need to come, and you guys have seen it, where they got the, the sparkle in their eye, right? And they are just jazzed up and excited, and they should be. And some of others, we're just limping along. <laughs> come, Jesus. <laughs> Come, Jesus, right? There's different phases. And so I think it's important to, one of the things that we ought to do is when we recognize that, let's make sure they're fed, but let's make sure they're comfortable in celebrating, and let's celebrate with them, okay? So maybe I won't, wa- I won't let them see me limp quite as much. The other thing is, let's not push them into areas that they shouldn't be. One of the things I think we're most guilty of in our country is pushing them on the mission field where we have a new believer who's 22 years old, and we go, you're called to be a missionary, go. And they go to the mission field, and they're not strong yet. And so they come back crippled. So let's just make sure we recognize what season people are in, and we try to move them to the next one with graciousness. Because it's very, very easy to do what the Pharisees did. These Pharisees are fasting, right? They have a conviction. There's nothing wrong with fasting but they didn't recognize the season because they didn't recognize Jesus. And so they take these traditions of man, it says in Mark 7, and they teach them as doctrines of God. Let me read this piece of scripture real quick. We're jumping forward to Mark 7, 8. It says, you leave, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you leave the commandments of God and you hold to the traditions of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own traditions. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother will surely die. But you say, if, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have to gain for me is Corbin, that means given to God, then I don't, I'm not permitted to take care of you. So Jesus is saying, you are making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Again, so the idea is, God says, hey, you're to honor your father and mother. This is one for the parents in here. And, these, and part of that, also God always has, you know, the tithe. 
And in this, in Corbin is the word for given to God. And so God says these people would have their money and see their father and mother struggling or in need, and they'd say, ah, sorry, I can't help you. This is my tithe. Now, I can see that happening with us. I can see that happening in our culture. How often do we go and we give our heart to um, poor widows and orphans, which we're called to, and I give my charity, not just my money, but, but the charity of my soul to those outside, and then I come home and I treat my family poorly. It's easy to do, and I'm guilty of that. That's what God's saying here. Yes, take care of the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Give. Those are commandments that we have, but not at the expense of these other commandments. And so again, I think as Christians, we need to be very careful. If God, if God puts it on French's heart to sell everything he has and give, good. But if he comes in and says, hey, you're to do this as well, you're to do this as well, now are we to give? Absolutely. Is it going to look exactly the same in his life as mine? Probably not. And so I think it's okay to tell the why, and here's what I'm led to do, and here's what I feel called to do. But then for the most part, I think, leave it there. And you let those decide. And you'll know when they need nurtured. You'll know when they need taught. You'll know when they need brought up. You'll know when they need to be healthy and strong. And then we challenge them to get going. Now, if you're at a place of the going, if this is where you're at, it's okay to say. It's okay to recognize that it's all by God's grace that you've gotten here. But I think the important message for you is found in, in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, I labor all the more, not I, but Christ in me. I see this season as working out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is where the work starts, right? But recognizing, as Paul did, for I toil, struggling with all of his energy, He's admitting there's a struggle. He's admitting there's daily grind to being a Christian. That's okay. We're not home yet. There's toil, there's struggle. But look what he says. I toil and I struggle with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. So it's nothing new. It's the same message. That we are sick. That we were sick. And Jesus Christ came by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and he brought us with him into each of those seasons. And what Mark is trying to convey here is that Christ is here. He's declaring the Messiah. He's showing us the Messiah. And then he says, what are you going to do with that, reader? What are you going to do with him? And for us, regardless of the phase, this is applicable. Either acknowledging and recognizing that you once were sick and it's by your, his grace that you're healthy and continuing to hang on to the position every single morning. Take your medicine, get in his word so that you can go out to a world. You can go out to whether they're Pharisees and legalistic and religious or whether they're tax collectors and the black sheep of their family, you express Christ to them. And as you do, people will follow. As you do, people will be drawn to Jesus. And church, that's what we're about. That's our call. I love how widespread that application is. Whoever our audience is, wherever you're at in your journey, God wants to use you. Let's pray. Father, again, I just thank you for your word. And uh, tonight I, I just thank you that I, 
I'm extra grateful that we have such application from it. And it's, it's a mystery to know how we, as broken men and women, can put Jesus on display. Uh, but you said that we can. And so I pray that you would grant me the faith, grant us the faith to believe it. And we thank you for healing us. We thank you that you can not just tell us we have a problem, but you did something about it. That you took on our sickness so that we could be healthy. I pray that we continue to have a posture of humility so that you could use us to your glory. It's in Christ's name. Amen.